Lord God, thank you so very much that you are here. And we ask, Lord God, that you would preach, which is a weird thought because um, we're going to move, we're going to listen, we're going to do stuff. And yet scripture says it's your word that does everything. So we ask that you would like do us this morning, Lord God, that you would preach us into your presence, that you would preach us into eternity, that you would preach us into your kingdom where every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them praises you, Lord God, and the one on the throne, the lamb that was slain. So, Father, be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Remember those boys? We talked about them quite a bit several months ago when we were preaching through Romans uh, chapter five. And how many of you remember the adventures of Superman? That's right, that's right, that's right, yeah. Adventures of Superman aired from 1952 through 1958, and the reruns ran for decades. So I was a kid in the 60s and Superman was always on. Ran for decades, and then for decades, uh, kids all across America would put on capes and pretend to be Superman. The TV show began with a feature film in 1951. I think it was called Superman and, and the Mole Men, but it was really the first installment of the, of the television show. So, so imagine, imagine if um, during that first feature film, or with that first feature film, Imagine if the studio executives, uh, wanting to ensure the future success of the franchise, they offered free screenings of that first installment of The Adventures of Superman. Uh, imagine if they offered it to all the seven-year-old boys in America. And, and then imagine if they hired a team of salesmen to stand up at the end of each of the screenings and say something like this to all those seven-year-old boys. Isn't Superman awesome? He saved the world with super strength and super power. He's the savior of the world. And now, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to let him save you. That's right. That means that you can choose to put your faith in Superman. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, Raise your hand if you choose to make a decision for 
Superman. And let me mention that, that if you do not choose to trust Superman, he, he won't save you. He'll torture you forever without end for not trusting him to save the world. So who wants to put their faith in Superman, the savior of the world? Well, I, I see those hands. Just, just pray this prayer with me right after me, and then be sure to watch each episode, dress like Superman, and buy all the available merchandise. I mean, can you, can you imagine? I bet every confused little boy would raise his hand. And then watch every episode, dress like Superman, buy all the available Superman merchandise, bound by fear. And an ever-increasing secret loathing of himself and Superman. They'd each confess Superman, and yet each would be unable to love uh, Superman. Forced to decide, they could no longer decide. They'd serve him with their lips, but every heart would be far from him and far from each other. For in Fear, each little boy would attempt to exalt himself over every other little boy, which is the exact opposite of the spirit of Superman, who sacrifices himself for all. Forced to decide, they could no longer decide to love anyone. But now, but now imagine another scenario. Imagine if the studio just showed the movie. Imagine if they just, you know, told the story and said nothing. And, and you really don't have to imagine that because that is exactly what happened. Between 1952 and 1958, basically, every kid in America made a decision for Superman. They watched the adventures of Superman every week, then they dressed like Superman, and they bought all the available merchandise. Every kid in America fell in love with Superman. And check this out, not just America, even Japan. Think about that, Japan. 1950s, this is the decade after World War II, and the adventures of Superman was ranked number one on Japanese TV. Emperor Hirohito even wrote a personal letter to George Reeves uh, thanking him because Superman was his favorite television show. George Reeves actually pled with the executives to stop merchandising capes because children were putting them on all over the country and then jumping off of roofs and getting hurt. Just trying to be like Superman. He had to, he had to make a public announcement to, to children, or, like I think it was in 1955, asking them not to jump off roofs anymore. Every kid had faith in Superman, and many still do. Eight months ago, when my son was home for Christmas, we binged watched Ted Lasso. Have you seen Ted Lasso? Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about an American football coach that gets hired to coach, you know, an English soccer team. And he doesn't know anything about soccer, but he knows that they have to pass the ball, and he knows that his team is full of ball hogs, so they never win and they never have any fun. The judgment is fun. Remember, we talked about that several months ago. Well, in episode seven, they play a team that they haven't beaten for like decades. And the night before the big game, Ted arranges for everyone to 
watch a movie. He asked Coach Beard, his assistant, to watch over the guys, saying this, around the 75-minute mark, there's going to be a room full of grown men crying. Coach Beard tosses a box of tissue on the paper and says, yep, and I'll be one of them. The movie is The Iron Giant, and at the 75-minute mark, as the Iron Giant is flying toward a nuclear warhead, just before he saves the world, he, he remembers this phrase, you are who you choose to be, and then he closes his eyes and he says, Superman, <laughs> as he flies into the nuclear warhead, sacrificing himself and saving the entire world. And sure enough, all those self-centered, spoiled, rich boy soccer players who wouldn't pass the ball, they just break down sobbing. And the next day, they pass the ball. They play as one, and they win the match. I also broke down, sobbed like a baby, watching the Iron Giant. It was 1999, I'd taken my kids to the movies, they were 5, 8, 10, and 11 at the time. And I remember that they all really liked the movie, but they were really worried about me because at the end I couldn't stop sobbing. But I wasn't sobbing at the 75-minute mark. I already knew that much of the story. It was the end. Well, anyway, we should talk about the book of Romans. That's why we're here, right? Right now we'll talk about Romans. Um, it seems that everyone thinks they know what the book of Romans is about. I mean, maybe you've seen this. We showed this earlier, the Romans road to salvation. People seem to think it's all about taking this road all the way to the point of, quote, decision, the point of decision that will save you from hell and get you into heaven. But strangely, the Romans road doesn't even make it to chapter 11, which we're on today. It stops at chapter 10, and Romans has 16 chapters. Because I'm an evangelical, that means a good newser, who was trained to preach in the 80s and 90s in America, every sermon was about getting people, preaching people to the quote-unquote point of decision. Point of decision, they'll save you from hell and get you into, into heaven. Well, whether you were preaching Romans or some other text, preaching to the point of decision then meant walking people through this thing that we called the plan of salvation, which included the following points, all right? Now, number one, the fall. The world's going to hell in a handbasket and it's your fault. Number two, justice. God is love but he is also just, which means somebody has to pay. Number three, grace, which means Jesus paid, so we don't have to. Number four, the cross, the payment happened at the cross one day in 33 AD, and so because God punished Jesus, he doesn't have to punish you. That's called the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. N number five, he doesn't have to punish us if we decide to acknowledge the validity of the plan, and that's a free decision called faith. Calvinists would jump in then and say, well, it's actually God's decision, but only for some, 
And you'll know if he's decided for you if you publicly decide for him. So yeah, you still must preach people to a point of decision. Number six, righteousness. Righteousness is a weird thing. Weird thing that's imputed to an account in a book because you made a decision uh, for God. And number seven, judgment. God judges your judgment. He judges your decision and you... You only have so long to decide because judgment's coming and they'll be too late. And here's the, the caveat. When you decide, when you choose, you have to really mean it. And you'll know if you really mean it by whether or not you act just like Jesus. That's righteousness, but not the imputed kind the chosen kind that you choose. But make no mistake, we'd say, we're not under the law, the Old Testament law. In other words, you don't have to sacrifice a chicken or get circumcised. However, this is good news, we will give you knowledge of good and evil so you know how to act like Jesus, affirm your faith, save yourself from the judgment of God, and you can get this knowledge by attending our meetings, dressing like us, and buying all the available merchandise. Now, I know that sounds cynical and rather confusing. But I was becoming rather cynical and awfully confused in 1999 because see, I was a successful pastor preaching expository messages from the Bible. That means not just a verse here and there, and, but, but like following the, the story. And time and time again, I get to the end of the text and there was no decision to be made. Just the announcement that God had made a decision. Almost as if he was telling the story. He determined the plot. He got all the glory because he made all the decisions. Almost as if he was the hero. He was the savior. And I was not. In 1999, that was all rather confusing to me. And the book of Romans was rather confusing to me for when I followed the Romans road, staying on the Romans road and taking it all the way to the end, it didn't seem to say that we are who we choose to be but that we are who God has chosen us to be. And so at minute 75 of the Iron Giant, I, I think I remember being really just agitated and frustrated. You are who you choose to be? I mean, I love that the giant chose to be Superman, but I also chose to be Superman and was in fact stressed out, never quite good enough man. And yet I was being paid to tell other people how to be Superman. So they would decide to be Superman. <laughs> and so no, I did not cry at the 75th minute. But in the end, I just couldn't stop bawling. <laughs> well, let's read our text. You know, this is Labor Day weekend and we've labored to this point and I'm hoping that we'll give birth. We've followed the Romans road all the way to the end, at least to the end of chapter 11, we'll get there today, and basically everyone agrees that it takes this dramatic turning point at the end of chapter 11, so I think it's important to review everything Paul has taught us so far, but we don't have time, and so let me just remind you with these old sermon slides, okay? This picture is us. Yeah, and, and that picture is, is this picture, and this picture... What is that picture? And this picture is 
this picture, which is also this picture, which is uh, this picture, which is this picture, which is, which is this, we talked about this, and which is also this, surprisingly, which, which, is, also, which is also this. And remember this, um, the thing on the left, the, the tupas, we talked about the tupas, the empty imprint of the Superman on the left, is lacking the same thing that the man, Adam, was lacking in the Garden of Eden in the beginning before the fall. And that thing is, is faith, which mysteriously comes from this tree, which is also this tree in this garden on the sixth day. Faith, which is also can be translated faithfulness. Faith or faithfulness is the judgment of God. It's his decision. We talked about all that. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. So I asked, did Israel, my old church, my group of people called out by God, I asked, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather through the trespass of them, the bad decision of them, the salvation has, the salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if the trespass of them means uh, riches for the world, and if the defect or the failure of them, and, and I'm, I'm putting, this, putting the article in because in the text it's there as if Paul is talking about one thing, okay? He keeps saying the, so the trespass is somehow the defect that's also going to mean these other things. If um, the trespass of them means riches for the world, and if the defect of them means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion of them mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, the nations, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the nations, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my flesh jealous and thus save some of them. For if the rejection of them means the reject reconciliation of the world, what will the acceptance of them mean but life from the dead? Life from the dead, life from the dead. Life. Let me just remind you that dead things cannot make decisions. So life must be God's decision for the dead. And life from the dead is a miracle. I mean, that's just like a virgin that conceives or a body that suddenly rises in a grave and walks out of a tomb. Verse 16, if the dough offered is first fruits. Now, Paul doesn't actually say it's dough that's being offered. The translator adds that, trying to make sense of it. He writes, if the first fruit, a parquet, first of the fruits, is holy, so is the whole lump, the farama. Chapter 9, Paul had asked us, remember, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same farama, the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and, and another vessel for dishonorable use? So part of the lump might be glorious, part of the lump might be depraved and dishonorable and even destroyed, but the whole thing becomes holy. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And now you remember that in Israel they had these three feasts, um, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and then tabernacles. And the fruit at the first two, they were harvest feasts, were like first fruits anticipating the last, which was tabernacles, when on the eighth day, eternal seventh day, everything is hard, all the fruit comes in. So first fruits is like a pledge that there's going to be more fruits, last fruits, all the fruits. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when and where is death defeated? Well, you know it's defeated on a tree that grows from a root. When the first fruit, firstborn from the dead, firstborn of all creation cries, it is finished and delivers up his spirit. <sighs> first Corinthians 15, 45. The first man, Adam, became a living soul the last Adam, the eschatos Adam, that is the ultimate Adam, the Superman, became a life-giving spirit. Anyway, Romans 11, verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off, literally, in the unfaith, but you stand fast in the faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note them, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Literally, uh, abide in the kindness, as if it were, you know, like a tabernacle or something. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even if they do not literally abide in the unfaith, as if it were like an outer tent, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them back in again. Sorry, I get worked up over this because there are people that say, well, gosh, something's, once something's dead, what can God do? Once it's reduced to dust, what can God do? Uh, what can God do with uh, something that's been destroyed? He made us by breathing into dust in the first place. So Paul writes, God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness, the pleroma of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So what is all Israel? Well, wouldn't that include the Israel that was not of Israel in chapter 9, verse 6? And the dishonorable lump in chapter 9, verse 21? And the vessel of wrath in chapter 9, verse 22? And the part that was hardened and cut off from Israel that becomes the fullness of Israel in chapter 11, verse 12? I mean, that's like we said, this is Judas and Ahab and Saul and all of those that were taken alive down into Sheol, even in the wilderness. And it must include the fullness of the Gentiles, right? Because we just read it. They're grafted into the same tree. And it's that place where sin increased in you and grace abounded all the more. Israel is like the tree of knowledge cut down to the root. Now having grown into the tree of life, 
in the sanctuary of Adam's soul. Verse 26, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and we are Zion, we're the temple, and we're the new Jerusalem. And remember, the tree of life is in the midst of the new Jerusalem. The deliverer will come to Zion in Isaiah, and Paul says, comes out of Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So righteousness doesn't just happen from the outside in, like, you know, a law imposed on a slave. The Savior comes to Zion, and the Savior comes from Zion like a life implanted in a womb, and then born out of that womb into this world. And what is life? Well, life is a free decision to love in a whole bunch of individuals, right? Life's a party at which everyone freely chooses to dance. Life's a symphony in which everyone freely chooses to play their own particular instrument but to play along to one song. Life's a continual sacrifice of one for all and all for one. Life's a decision to, to pass the ball. <laughs> and so enjoy the game. Life is a communion of free wills. Life is love, and that's the righteousness of God, not imputed to a book, but implanted in you. Verse 27. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What's a sin? Well, it's a bad decision, right? Taking it away is God's decision. <laughs> that would be a good decision. God's decision is to save us from our bad decisions. A decision is a judgment. So if I save people from God's judgment, I'm giving them up to their own judgment. <laughs> which is an illusion and a nightmare that we sometimes call hell. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But listen to this, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So let me just ask you this question. Is life a gift from God? Paul just said it's irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Did God call you? Now, just Janelle's nodding yes, that's good. But in your heart, if you don't feel it, I just, just answer. Did he call you? Yes or no? If you are one of his people, then he called you, according to Jesus in the Gospel of John, and it's irrevocable. And if you are not one of his people, Paul just wrote this, chapter 9, verse 25. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. That's irrevocable. Wow. Verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You cannot revoke his judgment with your judgment. And to think that you can is like a vain illusion, a dream. Irrevocable. Verse 30, for... Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, which is bad decisions, right? For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on, on all, which is his good decision, right? And now you see, that statement is just like profoundly simple. 
This is what every good father does with every self-centered child. He lets the children, the child, make their own bad decisions in order to reveal his good decision. I love you, even if you don't love me. So the statement is profoundly simple. And check this out. It's the obvious answer to the question Paul has been posing since chapter 9 where he wrote this. So then, it, and it is justice, the promise, salvation, it depends not on human will or exertion. He just goes to great at lengths to make that clear. But on God who has mercy. And then he writes, so then, God has mercy on whomever he wills. That's what offends people so much. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and this really offends him, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's his decision. And so this is the obvious question. Whom does God harden, and on whom does God will to have mercy? And this is the obvious answer, Romans eleven thirty-two. 32. God consigned all to disobedience, that he have, may have mercy on, on all. All are vessels of wrath, precisely so that all may be vessels of mercy, writes David Bentley Hart. As I say, not a hard argument to follow if one has a will to do so. Well, apparently not many have a will to do so. As if they're utterly terrified to do so, as if they're unable to do so, as if they've been blinded or hardened so that they cannot do so, and that's a mystery. <laughs> Just like Paul said. One of the most respected commentaries in my library, word biblical commentary, uh, argues that this statement, when it gets to this, and I just can't believe this, I had to read it several times, argues that this statement is so clear that maybe we shouldn't just believe it. John Stott, whom I respect in his commentary, he writes, Romans eleven thirty two. 32, could be understood to promise universal salvation in the end, but the rest of Romans just won't allow it. And that's absurd. The rest of Romans, the entire Romans road leads directly to it. It's not the book of Romans that won't allow it. It's his judgment of the judgment of God that won't allow the word of God to be true. For God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Next verse, as if Paul anticipates all of us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, pass beyond finding out, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Isn't this, this man on this tree in this garden, isn't this the depth of the riches and wisdom? Wisdom is like living knowledge. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Isn't this uh, the wisdom of God and the life of God? Isn't this what we took to make ourselves in the likeness of God? Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him, prodidomai, first given to him, that he might be repaid, antipodidomai, to, to give in return? 
Paul's quoting Job 41.11 when God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind saying, who has first given to me, Job, kadam is the, is the verb, given to me or prevented, prevented me, is how it's normally translated in the King James, prevented me that I should repay him. In other words, did you seriously think that you could prevent me from accomplishing my will with my word, Adam? Did you seriously think that if you had, I, the creator, would actually expect you to pay? Did you seriously think that justice is me making people pay? For if that's justice, there is no justice, because I pay for everything. And have you not read the law and the prophets? There are no penal substitutes. The soul that sins will die. Jesus died for your sins, but not so you wouldn't die for your sins, but so that having died, you would experience life from the dead. Resurrections only happen from the dead. Duh. I don't know if God actually says duh. And did you seriously think you could take something from me that I hadn't already given to you from the foundation of the world? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Wow, if Paul meant that, if that's true, how could anyone take anything from him or give anything to him? And how could anyone take anything from me or give anything to me? And how could I take anything from anyone or give anything to anyone? We pray for give us our debts. And maybe all of our debts are in our dreams. For the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. So maybe, maybe sin can't be paid for except with the realization that God has always paid for everything that's anything and even the nothing, which is my sin, my false self. Maybe sin is thinking we could steal anything from God and repentance is waking to the reality that God has always given absolutely everything to us. Maybe reality, maybe reality is a universe of absolute grace. And Hades is the insanity of hiding our shame because we have believed the lie that we can pay for ourselves. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Do you believe that? Yeah? How about that? <laughs> that belief in you. How about your faith? How about your decision? How about your free will? In other words, the you that you choose to be. You know, I think religion has taught people to believe that from him to him and through him are all things except <laughs> this one thing, the most important thing, your decision, your faith your quote-unquote free will that maybe isn't free, your good judgment. 
Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. If your faith is not from him, then to you be the glory in your story. You're the hero, not Jesus, but Mises, the imitation Christ, the antichrist, your ego. But if your faith is from him and through him and to him, then yes, to him be the glory forever, amen. End of story. You know, when Moses preached to a decision at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, the decision was the word that was in their mouth and in their heart. Remember, we talked about that. When Joshua, Yehoshua, preached to a decision saying, Israel, choose this day, he revealed that they couldn't choose that day for they're not yet of his house, Yeshua's house, his temple, his body. When we preach people to their own decision, I think we crucify God's decision. You may get a whole lot of people to show up, but everything dies. I don't think Paul, at least once he had met Jesus on the road, or Jesus met him on the road to the demand, I don't think he ever preached to a human decision. He just preached God's decision, and God's decision changed the world. He preached God's decision, which is his word, who is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, blah, 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 blah. He, he preached Jesus, which means God is salvation. God is salvation, and you are not. And that, my friends, is a tremendous relief. So it's sweet in your mouth, but you swallow it, and you begin to realize that it is a massive insult. And finally, a conundrum and a mystery and a miracle. For if I am who I choose to be, well, then I am nothing but a vain, arrogant illusion. However, if I am not who I choose to be, then it would seem that I am nothing but a robot. <laughs> The Iron Giant is a massive metal robot that falls to Earth in 1957. At the heart of the Cold War, he befriends a fatherless little boy who loves comic books named Hogarth. He hits his head upon landing and apparently develops amnesia. Hogarth knows the giant because the giant knows him. In other words, they're friends. An investigator from the government thinks he knows the giant for he knows all about giant metal machines. He knows all about guns and nuclear war. And so he projects himself onto the giant, terrified of what the giant might do, which is exactly what he would do if he were the giant. His name is Manly. And ironically, the giant is actually a huge gun with immense power, 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 power. But Hogarth tells the giant what his mom had told him. You are what you choose to be. One day they see a deer shot in the wood by a couple of hunters and then they drop their guns and the giant worries that maybe he's just a gun. I know you feel bad about the deer, but it's not your fault. Things die. It's part of life. It's bad to kill, but it's not bad to die. Well, yes. Someday. I don't know. You're made of metal, but you have feelings. 
and you think about things, and that means you have a soul, and souls don't die. Mom says it's something inside of all good things, and that it goes on forever and ever. Now, Hogarth is seven, um, and he says souls don't die. So you have to forgive him for the technical inaccuracy. Technically, according to scripture, souls do die. The psyche dies. The nefesh can die. But it's the spirit that doesn't die. And the spirit, Paul has said this in chapter 8, is life. In the beginning, God breathed his spirit into dust, and Adam became a living soul. And it seems that Adam held his breath, his life, his spirit within his soul like a prison. On the cross, the eschatos Adam, the super Adam, died and delivered up his spirit. It was his choice. Delivered up his spirit, which is life, which is the spirit that fills the temple, that is the body on Pentecost. And then Peter preaches and everything changes. So like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the first Adam became a living soul. <gasps> the super Adam became a life-giving spirit. <sighs> That's life. And what he chooses to be. Well, in the movie, Manly and the principalities and powers of this world try to capture the giant. And when they can't control the giant, Manly gets Hogarth to betray the location of the giant in order to save his, his mom. <laughs> Just like Judas betrays Jesus, and I think he did it in order to save Jerusalem. And then terrified of the giant, Manly launches a nuclear warhead at the giant, unaware that by killing the giant, he will be killing all things with him. Manly chooses to be what all people choose to be, a vessel of wrath. But the iron giant chooses to be something else. So like Jesus says to his disciples, just before he goes to the cross, the iron giant says to Hogarth, no following. And then... He saves the world. That missile is targeted to the giant's current position! Where's the giant, Mansley? Well, oh. It's a missile. When it comes down, everyone will die. There it is! <laughs>
choose to be. That's the 75th minute, and it's a beautiful picture of the cross. God doesn't kill the giant in order to feel better about us. We kill the giant who freely chooses to die, and then we feel better about him. And the giant doesn't make anyone pay except with the knowledge that he has paid and so he freely chooses to be what he always is. According to Scripture, only God freely chooses to be who he always is, and he always chooses to be Yeshua. God is salvation. Jesus, that's love incarnate. He's the eschatos man, the superman, the judgment of God. Acts 17, 31, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness in a man, says Paul to the Athenians. It's, it's beautiful, but I wasn't crying. Not at the 75th minute. I mean, I had told that story a thousand times, preaching people to the decision. And we would decide, then think we were done and argue about who was now the best. But we didn't seem very much different than everybody else. In a lot of ways worse than everybody else, like whitewashed tombs. Not Superman, but lonely, anxious, insecure men or boys. And you know, um, at minute 75, everyone that the giant had saved still had to die. And so is that all that the death of Jesus is? You know, a beautiful decision once upon a time that you can never live up to. Or maybe like a statue in a park that just creates an empty space in the depths of your soul. Oh, hey, Hogarth, um, the general sent this to you. What is it? He said it was the only part recovered. He thought you should have it. I miss him. puts that broken piece of the giant in a, in a box that is a picture of his empty soul, his earthen vessel, by the side of his bed, and he falls asleep.
thus, when I just started sobbing and couldn't stop, and I still can't stop, I think I realized that that was the thing that was happening to me in that very moment. And that was the thing that would happen to everyone in that very same moment. For in that eternal moment, we are all drawn to the head and drawn to each other by the free will of God, <laughs> rising from the dead within our souls and not leaving us, but drawing us with him, with it. So, so I wasn't on my own trying to love God and desperately impress God, who is love. And I wasn't just a robot. I was the incarnation of the judgment of God. I was the body of the Superman. So every good decision in me was him rising from the dead in me in communion with me, his righteousness being imputed to me, the me that we freely choose to be. Well, every bad decision in me is well, Peter, don't get too worked up about it. It's who I am not. And yet even that becomes hope for the revelation of who I am. It's not my decision. And yet, it is my decision. Because God gives it to me. Even as he makes it within me. It's the miracle and the mystery, it's faith. Faith becomes hope and hope becomes love and it's love that's telling the story and love binds all things together. Not from the outside in like a law, but from the inside out like a new will. A free will. It's in the garden of your self-centered soul that Jesus prays this. Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He wills what you do not will, and that's faith and hope and love. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul writes, when all things are subjected to him, to God, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Early church fathers like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa taught that this final submission of Christ to the Father refers not to his own divinity, but to his own humanity, which is us, his body. Ephesians 1.10, the mystery of his will, a plan for the fullness of time to unite. Anakephaliao is the Greek verb, literally to bring together under one head, or, or even more literally under one wounded head, a plan for the fullness of time to bring together under one head all things in Christ Jesus. The verb anakephaliao is translated something like recapitulato in Latin. And since it was Irenaeus that first really wrote about this as a theologian in the second century, it's become known as the recapitulation theory of the atonement, the very first theory of the atonement. But it's not a theory. Like penal substitutionary atonement formulated a thousand years later. It's not a theory, it's simply the word of God. It's the judgment of God. And that's a miracle, a miracle. It's not a plan for us to work. It's the plan that works us. It's not dependent on our decision. It is the eternal, unrelenting, 
absolute decision, eternal decision of God. It's this. On the night Jesus was betrayed by us, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take, put it inside of you. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. Now remember, the life is in the blood, spirit's in the blood. Drink of it, all of you. And then he said, and do this in remembrance of me. This is how we re, you're all members, member him. And this isn't your decision. It's his decision. But maybe it'll show up in you. It's his judgment. Now, you can run from his judgment for a time. But you cannot change the judgment. God in Christ Jesus is still the Savior of the world. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Every eye closed including mine. And just pray this prayer after me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And Father, while we were singing, I think there was a moment when I actually meant that. <laughs> so thank you. Amen. Uh, you know, um, so people will, will ask, uh, so what, what do we do? And, uh, <laughs> and that's, a, that's an important question. What, what do I need to do? And you need to know we're at the end of chapter 11. So Paul's going to suggest a whole bunch of things right after we turn this corner. But the first thing is what chapters 1 through 11 were all about. I think this is the very first thing that I would ask of you every week. Watch the adventures of Superman. That's why we come here to watch the adventures of uh, Superman and then ingest the decision of God. So every week, just watch the adventures of Superman and then this is the miracle. You will become, literally, the adventures of Superman. He'll live his life in you and you will save the world. And it's not just psychology. It's theology. That means God word. And it's not dead. It's alive. So by way of benediction, now notice that I'm not asking you. I'm not inviting you to make a decision. In the name of Jesus, I'm commanding you. Believe the gospel. Amen. Amen.